This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Today on the Cameron Journal podcast, we are happy to welcome Daniel Sanderson to the podcast. He is the founder and CEO of a new media company called Plank Sip, and they do all sorts of exciting things, including deep dives on stuff, um, a very exciting several YouTube channels, um, one of which I'll be appearing on next Tuesday, and uh, um, which will have long come out by the time you hear this and uh and all sorts of interesting things and we're going to learn more about him his career where he came from how he got here and how this wonderful media company got started so this will be an exciting conversation and i'm sure it will lead to all sorts of interesting places so welcome danny to the cameron journal podcast how are you oh fantastic thanks for having me good well thank you so uh why don't we start straight from the straight from the beginning um i was reading about you a little bit online and i found out you got your start i think in architecture which yeah. i thought it was very interesting so why don't you why don't you tell us how you got from buildings to online media that sounds interesting well the the one aspect of buildings that i'm an expert in is the building envelope which is uh that barrier that separates the outside from the inside mm. and uh I live on the West Coast. It's particularly rainy, and um, there's a lot of moisture in in our area of the climate. So that's what we have to contend with a lot in 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 the particular area on the West Coast of Canada and throughout the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Now, <clears throat> the listeners should probably be aware that I'm not an architect. I never was an architect. Um, I went to business school. And then I went the route of the capitalist and I, <laughs> I started, I started my own business and I sold products to the architectural industry. And I have been in probably over a thousand, uh, architects offices, giving presentations about various different products, um, primarily focused on building envelope. Hmm. Fantastic. Well, I was I was wondering how that all how that all happened. So now that we understand that you grew from that and then you got into the game of digital media. How when did you decide to leave building envelopes behind and get into the to the digital arts? Well, I've just come up with that that uh, response just as as you've brought it up. Uh, uh, let, let, let me label it and describe it for the audience in 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 a true phenomenological sort of way um and and that's just just through description 
I, I, we haven't got to the public philosopher part. We'll get there in a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So, um, I, I basically had a, um, a four horsemen, uh, uh, I guess, uh, almost midlife crisis, right? I mean, if I'm going to degradate, degradate myself and throw myself under the bus, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. I want you to picture um, uh, uh, somebody that lives and breathes business, operations, taxes, growth, these types of things, right? Like to be a successful entrepreneur and to uh, get a company into the multi-million dollar sort of price bracket you have to be focused. And it was right around the time when I discovered uh, and was lured into the new atheist movement with the Christopher Hitchens and uh, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett that I thought, wait a minute, these guys have nothing to do with business and they're kind of cool. And I haven't really been in the mind space of biology or um, the beautiful writing of Christopher Hitchens, right? I, ha- I haven't, I haven't explored literature like I really thought I would have liked to. So, uh, basically, my life took a very sharp turn, um, and whether it's for the good or not, I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe the jury's still out on that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, so what, so, so you got, so that's how you kind of got into all that. And now you are, you've leaned in heavy to it all and you're a public philosopher philosophizing. Um, what is, what has that been? What has that been like? How's that been different than what you came from? Well, uh, it's very hard to make money at that. I mean, I've, I've, I've had conversations uh, with myself, and I've I've heard this in um, in society at several times in, in several uh, places. Imagine you had a, a child, and it, they came to you and they said, "Hey, uh, Dad, I'd like to, I'd like to be a philosopher for for a living." <laughs> um, well, son, you know we might have to just as long as you know, there's probably not a lot of money in that. Now, I mean. I don't know. I think it was uh, Thales. I'm not sure if it was Thales, but there was there was one story of of a philosopher that bulked up on all of presses and and made a killing because he was able to time that correctly back in ancient times. But for the most part, it's just not something that's looked as um, and I mean making money is not looked at as something that is like an intellectually um, high serving pursuit um, or even anything that's really um, beneficial for society, which is, which kind of blows my mind in a way. No, you actually did. Th- it's funny you said because you did things in reverse order. We did a study at the University of Northern Colorado where I went to undergrad and it was often cited. Philosophy majors two years out from their undergrad are the poorest. 20 years out, they're the richest. Because they all go out and start businesses. Oh. It, it's really weird. Like a lot of people coming out of the philosophy department end up being very entrepreneurial. They go out and start businesses and they and then they do very well. It just takes a long time. Whereas the business majors come out and they're the highest, usually them in tech are the highest earning after undergrad, but their wages stagnate on the long term. 
Whereas philosophy majors, it's much more of an upswing. And so you end up, you know, in, you know, 20 years out, 25 years out with, you know, philosophy majors catching up to your business and tech people who have who have stagnated. So it's it you just did it, but in reverse order. So it makes yeah. sense to it. Yeah, it makes sense to me that that would be. <clears throat> That would be the case. And incidentally, I was friends with all the philosophy kids in undergrad. I was one class short of a minor in philosophy for my undergrad. And uh, um, all they're all doing very well. It's almost it's not I'm not quite 20 years out. I'll be I'm 15 years out and they are all do the one became a doctor. We'll put him to one side. But yeah, they've all started their own little businesses. One's into permaculture. It's a whole thing. Like, it's oh. just amazing where people end up. So, yeah. yeah, so but it, it is rather interesting um, that, you know, with wanting to wanting to pursue that. So so what was like in terms of day one? So I presume that you sold off your other business and then there was that first day of, OK, I want to explore literature and do all of those things. Where did you start? Where did you begin? Did you just like invade a Barnes and Noble and just buy whole bookshelves of things like this whole stack i'll take the whole thing just take it out to my car like how how did you how did you begin well in the spirit of friendship which is really um in a hierarchy above justice in fact i don't i don't know if you knew that but um there there's no need for justice if there's if, if there's a pervasive um purity of friendship between people and and one thing i want to talk about um and and plug you on is i was really impressed with your your uh, list of books that you've you've read, and oh, thank you. He's referring to the official book list, um, which is available at CameronJournal.com. Yes, that's my recommended reading list if one wants to be well read. Yeah, and I I, I look at that and I think I mean you've got all the bones there for um, like you say being well read, but there's some uh, you know I just glanced at it, but there's a lot of classics there. Uh, of which there's many of those are are uh, fun book reviews on on Planksip. Um and the where did I start? I guess um, it wasn't a cut and dry. It wasn't a start uh, on Monday morning sort of thing. Um, I just found that I was losing interest. Now, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm reluctantly in a class of ADHD or, or anything, you know, in, in some sort of um, a high functioning sort of um, group. But um, I think that when I, <clears throat> when I look at my attention span and what I focus on, if I lose interest in it, right, we could call it passion, but if I lose interest in it, then it's, um, I just can't sustain it. I can't sustain it. And so maybe it was the fact that uh, making money and selling um, architectural products was just was boring. It didn't captivate my imagination. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was actually a slow, a relatively slow process. I remember having a conversation um, with a friend of mine uh, who inspired me a lot uh, to read The Four Horsemen. And I could not get through a philosophy book. I, I would read one paragraph, not understand a word of it, and then read it again and not understand it, get frustrated and put it down. Right. 
And <clears throat> that's not like me. That feels like a, a challenge. And it was kind of a challenge. Um, I was like, damn it, I'm going to understand this stuff. Right. And I think what happened is that my, my reading uh, took off from a nonfiction standpoint. So um, I'm going to name drop a little bit, but I only name drop because I think they were really inspirational um, and influential thinkers for me. And in, in the early days, this is prior to any, I'm not going to name a single uh, philosopher, but <clears throat> uh, Robert Sapolsky, which is an endocrinologist and a primatologist, um, his YouTube channel and videos, I guess videos are all over um, uh, the Stanford site. He's, he's quite an amazing uh, academic, I think. Uh, his book, Behave, I've read multiple times. And uh, James Glick, I think that yeah, was really good. The reason I bring him up next to uh, Sapolsky is because I heard uh, James Glick's book, Chaos, recommended by Sapolsky in an interview or some sort of video I was watching. And I think, uh, and, and basically Robert Sapolsky said, uh, it's the one book he's read where he immediately, when he finished it, he picked it up and read it again. <laughs> like that's good. That's a that's a good book to want to read, right? Indeed. And so, so what I what I would do is um, maybe feed some what of a healthy addiction and say I want to go and get that book and I want to read it and I want to read all of James Glick's stuff, which of course I did and um, and consume all of Sapolsky's stuff. But the reason I bring the two of those up in a pair is that the beauty about academic reading and reading nonfiction books is that there's so much information to learn. It's not a summary um, and what can I summarize it like a headline on a social media post. There's so much information in a well-written nonfiction book, in the footnotes, in the references. Um, try changing your cadence of reading. Um, try note-taking. Try listening to an audible version while you're note-taking. Try and create content while you're reading it. Um, so that act of creation is a really beautiful exercise to, to reinforce and myelinate um, learning around the concepts that um, are available in, in these books. Right? Okay. So I've just given two names, but let, let me give you a few more. So... Um, uh, Steven Pinker's uh, wonderful. Uh, his his books are quite awesome. Um, I got special permission to publish him on Planksip. In particular, a um, an article um, on belligerence where he's responding to Nassim Taleb about calling him a science writer, which was an interesting uh tit for tat thing that they they did as uh academics <laughs> so i don't know do you do you remember that at all that that whole situation between taleb and and pinker i you know one of my philosophy friends told me about it as sort of a joke sort of thing i was not at the scene of the crime when it happened i was just kind of made aware of it sometime later so no i don't really remember it happening i was just aware that it happened but it yes it is it was entertaining it was entertaining yeah, and, and and so 
what I alluded to a few a few sentences ago or a minute or so ago about the act of creating. Um, I, I I wrote um, an article. Uh, I got permission from Pinker to republish his response on the belligerence of, of Taleb. And, and then um, I actually created some uh, digital art around it, right? So I actually took uh, a heavy set guy jumping on the bell curve, right? And, and kind of pushing out the, uh, you know, pushing out the ends of the bell curve, right? So, um, and, and it actually, what happens when you do that uh, for anybody that knows Taleb's work is that he just bashes the, the um, almost idealistic platonic ideal of making the meridian a, a bell curve and trying to fit everything, uh, you know, to a normal distribution. Right now, I don't know if if the audience knows what I'm talking about or if I'm just using jargon, but I will tell everybody here. Um, I'm a layman philosopher. So I intentionally use jargon because I reach up and I want people to reach up. I don't do it to obfuscate. I don't do it to confuse people. I do it because words are power, powerful and I, and I choose those words intentionally. Uh, it's how I write. When I read, I like to stop and I like to have a dictionary beside me. And I think that provides amazing um, insight and instant gratification on learning right now whether or not i that was how i was that was how i was raised my mother would never tell me what words meant i always had to go find out for my own which then got me into reading the dictionary i used to have years and years ago i had a copy of the oxford new english american dictionary and uh, our new american english dictionary that's the correct word or order those words and um i read that cover to cover a couple times and that's, you know, if, if anything, I've had to break myself of the habit of using really expansive language and really precise words because people just they don't learn this type of language anymore. It's not accessible to people. And so I've really had to tone it down. But when I when I was younger, I didn't shy away from precise, you know, advanced language from a very young age. So I think you've taken the correct path. Well, you know what, my friend, I, I am almost going to um, urge you to uh, pursue that a little bit. And I think I've had a, the privilege of, of reading some of your writing and some of your work. And <clears throat> I hope to see a lot more uh, as we develop our friendship. And I think that um, I'm excited to see what 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 you can produce when you when you put the full when you fire on all cylinders, I guess, right, intellectually, um, that's one of the things that I encourage people to do on Planxit. And the reason is, is that I want to try and say that it's a little bit different than trying to write for an audience at Planxit. I think the, the, the starting point is that you write for yourself. Um, and it's not selfish. It's trying to be on on that event horizon of using the writing, the process of writing to understand and be truly captivated by a subject and 
journal, right? Right in the margins, try and articulate it and learn it and break it down and write it and create it. That's, that's what I want Planksip to be for people um, because I know it is for me. Um, and so that's my challenge to you is that I want to see you elevate your writing in that direction. And, um, and anybody no, the, that will, uh, the, no, the, the difficult, going. I mean, for me, it's, it's really difficult because to, for me to do that well requires a, a, a word count that I think most people find a bit off putting, you know, um, even some of the rather shorter things that I write these days, I don't do much under 750 words anymore. A lot of things are a thousand. Um, uh, in fact, I wrote a piece recently called Russia and the Grand Narrative, where I kind of went over, you know, the history of Russia and why invading Ukraine was so important. And that that clocks in at 1200 words. And I was speeding through the history and the information as fast as possible. That's that's the only that's kind of the part that always kind of makes me a little bit nervous is because I'm kind of like, if I go on for 2000, 3000 words, who is going to read this in this day and age? Nobody. Like, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm better than BuzzFeed. You know, I I have people, you know, literally that I've had contribute to the site. 500 words is a stretch for them. So, yeah, um, yeah so I, I I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I, I love, I love that. And I definitely am into, um, I, I'm definitely into being in a place where deep dives are welcome and encouraged. Um, when it comes to finding an audience for that, what has that been like? I guess we're going to get into Planksip right now, but like, how is how have you found an audience that's ready for long form deep dives? Because they're not at the Cameron Journal. Let me just say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love so, my readers to death, but they are not a long they're not a long form a long form deep dive crowd. Look, I I think the best thing is to rate the content that um, most challenges you and 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 aids your learning, right? I suppose. I mean, that's probably the easiest way I can explain it. Um, but once that's out, then I think then that's when the beginning, that's when it starts, that's when it uh, begins to unfold. So um, creating videos, creating content, creating, making use of the multi uh, media, right? So Long form discussion is great. We're both doing it. Um, but unless you're a very, very well-known um, intellectual celebrity, uh, it's very hard to get people to stay past 12 minutes. They don't emotionally have a buy-in with you, right? Say right. you do a live event for 45 minutes to an hour. Well, you can see from the YouTube metrics that you're just going to drop off after 12 minutes if you're lucky. Right. So, you know, you got to make those things um, – you have to make those things entertaining, right? Um, and so I think there's a time and a place. The reason why I'm moving around so much is I've got this little dog that's a lap dog, right? It's a- Oh, it's yes. Uh, no, we, um, love, we love the doggos. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, so she, she doesn't understand that I'm recording and she's there. She's good now, but she's um, positioned herself right underneath the computer, right? So- <laughs> The lap is, you know, she she owns that 
that spot, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and she's retaken possession as of now. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it, it is true. Like, it is definitely one of the things that I've always prided myself on is keeping things entertaining enough that people, not everybody, but a lot of people do stick around. Um, I remember when uh, several, it's not as high as it used to be, but several years ago, I was always proud of the fact that my on-page time average at the Cameron Journal was almost a minute and a half. And hmm. which it, it, the sad thing is in internet time, that's an eternity and eternity, but people would stay and read and scan and go watch videos, my, mine or other people's or all this type of thing. Um, I have a whole cadre of people that love the podcast and the audio stuff because they're vacuuming, they're cleaning the house, they're driving to work. I intentionally make my episodes 45 minutes to be about the length of a, an average commute because people, I, I tell people, take me to work with you. You know, it's really easy. And so trying to make all of these things really accessible. Um is is kind of what my my whole thing has has been so so our working together is going to be different because it will be by, by its very nature a bit less accessible because it's going to be much much I mean, that's what i was i was thinking in kind of like does he have any idea how much how long these pieces could get things will be much much longer and much deeper and so but it'll be fun um it'll be fine and uh yeah it's a difficult it's a difficult it's a difficult thing you know it's... Well, shit, I work with academics, right? And they're publishing stuff and putting them in journals. And, you know, where do I go? Well, you know, I mean, I have a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm constantly going to journals like uh, PNAS and, uh, you know, reading through their headlines, so quote headlines. So, you know, I try not to skim through them. I try to really spend some time with them and try and note take. And um, it's like, the investigative journalist in me is doing it with not current events, but with like literature and, um, and, and what other people are writing and not to prove them wrong, but to, to try and extract and try and learn from what, you know, what, what they've, what they've put together. Um, I've, I spend a lot of time in the footnotes Almost in anything I read, I spend a lot of time on the structure of the book, on the index. Um, I have a, a proprietary, I guess we could say it's proprietary because I've, you know, created a, a, a system where I analyze the index of a book. And this was part of some of the work I wanted to do as a philosopher, uh, trying to create something called an objective ontology. And so it is, um, it is like a, a micro ontology. It's not, it's not an all encompassing ontology, uh, in terms of, um, uh, a state of being for the existence of, of, uh, of humanity, but it is an ontology somewhat similar to a sense that you would use in computer science, right? I mean, the existence of a particular program or programming language, um, could be resubstantiated if you had the um, uh, the the bare essentials of this element, this element, and this element all put together, and what does it look like? And that, that's kind of how uh, a computer science ontology um, is described. Um, the way I do the objective ontologies on a book review uh, or book study is to look at instances of 
um, of, of the index and see how the index is put together. So if if there's a disproportionate amount of citations towards um, women in history, um, and I went there only because <laughs> it was like a lot of times there's a disproportionate uh, mention towards men, um, which seems to be a little bit of the norm. Um, and for whatever reason, I'm not going to delve into why that is the case, but um, if there was a disproportionate amount of women in it, then you could say, oh, well, that's interesting. And why is that the case? Right. And, you know, you might know that automatically from the title, but what you're looking for is some things that you may not have known about the, um, the, the data and the, um, the correlations that you see in the, uh, in, in, in the data set that you essentially gather, right? Now I'll give you I'll give you one example. Um, I've you know like him or love him, Jordan Peterson. Okay, he's a he's a force that has infiltrated our culture. I think he thinks he's infected um, more like it. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. So I I mean I have a healthy annoyance, we'll say, with him. Um <laughs> But I don't begrudge him. I think he's he's on his own hero's journey. And I think it's on his own hero's journey because I think he he feels like he's fighting a um, like almost like a um, he's on an apologetic of sorts. Right. And he I mean, he really I mean, anyways, that's enough said about that. But I did an extensive analysis of his books, Maps of Meaning, which is horrible, by the way, I, I think personally. But I, I, I looked at it, and there's certain people that he mentions that I find that he he um, he, he will talk a lot about uh, Carl Jung or Jung, right? In his in his um, in his stand-up routines. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and um, but there's there's other thinkers that. He, that are mentioned as much in his book that we don't really hear him vocalize as much. And so that was an eye like an eyebrow raising um, uh, something that, that was intriguing to me that, that drew attention to the fact that maybe I should look up some of these people that he constantly refers to, but hasn't really taken on the roadshow. Right. And then I was really happy to discover to discover a few other thinkers that I, um, you know, that I that I didn't know. And then I think I I understand Jordan's perspectives a little bit more. Right. I don't think he's pulling from a rich enough um, vessel. I think he's missing uh, a lot of the equation. I think he's. um basically like we would accuse scientists of cherry picking data. And I think, you know, there's some of that that goes on with Jordan. Right. I, I, and, I uh, feel like, I feel like Jordan Peterson and I, I wrote a piece called my obligatory tristis on Jordan Peterson. And I wrote about my discovery of him and I was not in a good mental health place when I discovered Jordan Peterson. And I, um, ended up interacting with a PhD in behavioral psychology who has a great YouTube channel named Cass Aris. She did a complete series of videos on his first book. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I actually ran her Discord for a while. Um, but uh, it's uh, it was it, it was it, an interesting sort of sort of thing. And I think not only does he kind of cherry pick data and instances and examples, he has a very particular, very narrow narrative about life, particularly when it comes to the lives of men that I find regressive at best and stuck in stuck in the past. I'm working on a piece right now called Future Nostalgia, where I'm talking about why we seem to be stuck in the past and nostalgia and we're not looking forward. Um and and I and I think it is there's a couple reasons for that. Some of them are economic, some of them are social. Um uh, some of them have to do with it kind of being the end of history. The next thing hasn't started yet. So in the future, so amorphous, we can't conceive of it. It's really a failure of imagination. Um, but P Peterson really is trying to call us back to a very old-fashioned, regressive version of men, manhood, and masculinity that, to be very honest, is really no longer useful in our modern civilized society. And I think that because that's kind of his narrative on that subject anyway, um, he makes everything fit that narrative, you know, whether it's the lobsters eating each other in the bucket or, you know, all this type of thing. He, everything has to serve that narrative of things have gone horribly wrong. We must go back to the way things used to be and, and gone. From and I think people have identified with that and dialed in with that because, you know, he was the first to come out and say, you can have whatever pronouns you want, but I'm not using them. That's coerced speech. And he's the first to come out and be kind of like, look, all this progress, all these way things are changing, all the new things that people are doing. That's not good. We really need to go backwards. Things were better in the past. And I think for people who are nostalgic for a, a simpler time, a more stable time, even though that's not real, it's an illusion, but that's what people think. Perception is reality. Um, it, That's where he has his appeal. And I think not only is that regressive, it's incredibly dangerous because when you start leading people down that path, you get fascism and autocracy real fast. It doesn't take long. Um, in 1930s Germany, when Hitler was painting this picture of Germany as, you know, the country with the big main character energy in Europe and how, you know, glorious and wonderful the German past was. And we have to recapture that and all that type of thing. It, we saw how that ended. Mussolini did the same thing with Italy. He was all about the Roman aesthetic, you know, all this type of thing to recall a more glorious past. And mm. when you start to have large portions of society who are engaging in this false nostalgia. Adam Curtis talks about this in his documentary, Hypernormalization. When you get that energy going, almost 100 in terms of the time, at least, of fascism and autocracy. The Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, same story. You On the planet, you see it over and over and over again. And I worry that Peterson has influenced a, a, a lot of young men to want to look for this better past where things were more fair and better for them and there were no trans people and no gay people and all this type of thing and it we're not going to escape that without seeing the profound social consequences of that mm -hmm. And and we kind of already see it now with Peter. He's had other people kind of break off and do the same thing. You have Andrew Tate and his whole country, the whole 
pickup artist scene. There's all this, all this stuff now of these regressive, toxic things that are being elevated and platformed as good and positive things, the way the world really should be. And that's going to have social consequences that we have not fully realized yet. And so in that way, I think he's somewhat dangerous. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not agreeing with that. I'm actually, um, I'm actually confused. Uh, it, it's more confusion because I see, um, I see uh, a healthy description would be um, a left and a right. I think, I mean, would you agree with that? Just, I, I mean, I don't want to move it any the conversation any much much more for, further unless right. we could say for for the 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 point of the next sort of five minutes we could say we could <laughs> frame that in a left and right sort of situation right i mean would you would you would you be with me on that if i said we'd look at this more on a left and a uh more of a conservative um liberal republican democrat sort of scenario would you would you agree with that I, I'm not a huge fan of binary choices and all that type of thing. But yeah, I mean, we can certainly look at it from that view. Sure. Well, I guess, I mean, the only thing that I was uh, trying to frame is that it, it, to me, it seems like there, you could, you could pull, you could get the same effect if you pushed it the other way, right? You could get fascism if you moved it too far to the left and you could get, um uh you know you could get something like you described if you moved it too far um you know too far to the right um oh certainly and, and when I, you get far enough left or far enough right you start to run into each other in the back of the room yeah right so i so i.e the bernie sanders to donald trump supporter pipeline like it, it that's which is a real thing like there's this whole cadre of people that started out as Bernie Sanders supporters and then became Trump supporters and I'm like well yeah they went so far that they found themselves on the other side all of a sudden and are you, you know. kidding me really there's a whole cadre of 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 Bernie supporters that turned <laughs> Trump millions <laughs> of people amazing. yes yes wow. yeah no the, the the Sanders to Trump supporter pipeline is very real and there's yeah, there's a whole wing of the MAGA crowd that started out as Bernie Sanders supporters. And when Bernie's campaign never got off the ground in 2016 or 2020, they started supporting Trump instead. And wow. it, and, and and that's why I said, like, yeah, in, in any political environment, if you go to one extreme far enough for the other, you will start to run into the other side. You even see this in on the Republican side when you get into the anti-corporate aspect of things. It's, all of a sudden, it's kind of like, oh, my goodness, them and the far left could have a lot in common all of a sudden. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. you know, so you start to you have kind of these confluences of opinion on certain subjects, which for me is heartening because that's where bipartisanship and compromise happens. But, yeah, it, it definitely can. You, yes, I'm not saying that you can't get fascism from far leftism. You certainly can. Hi, China the Soviet Union to some lesser degree. Um, yes, you can, you, even in like a Venezuela or uh, Chile before, after um, Allende. Uh, yeah, you can definitely go, you know, too far one direction, you get, you get fascism. However, in the 20th century, the right tends to create fascism more often and faster than the left does, by Ooh. and large. Okay. Okay. And... And I think that's because 
you there's the, the I think you know conservative conserving the past what you grew up with whatever have you is a known entity it's it's easy to hang on to that because you know what it is it's in a container the future mm-hmm. and progress and change is scary it's frightening it's unknown what will this mean for society what will this mean for our children and you you well you with the trans stuff you hear this type of language a lot and i'm big into heidegger so i'm a big believer in truth is in the language study the words um and uh and so you have this this kind of tension there and so i think the baseline and i say this as someone who grew up as a republican and didn't change my party affiliation till 2012 um it's very easy to conserve stay conservative stay in that box in that container it is brave and daring to look to a different brighter future that might include other things other people other voices things that are new things that are different that's actually an act of bravery because it's unknown it's scary it's frightening and i think there's if there's one thing i see particularly from the right in this country i don't see it as much in canada i don't follow canadian politics heavily but um i see it a lot in this country i see it a lot in the uk is there's a lot of fear by right-wing voters you saw that you see that in the tory party in britain you see that the republican party in this country it's fear of the future rather than an, an attempt to embrace and i think Half the time why left-wing rhetoric doesn't get anywhere is we appeal to people with facts and logic, and that's not where they are. They're in feelings. We actually need to appeal to their emotions. That's why Donald Trump did so well. He appealed to emotion, and that mm-hmm. gets you far faster in this world than appealing to facts and logic does. And what what the left never, very rarely does is appeal to emotion. And so literally you could solve a lot of problems if leftists would get on TV and say, yes, this is scary. Yes, this is frightening. Yes, it's a huge change. Yes, we didn't have never had this before. And that's okay, but we're gonna try it now. Like to appeal to that sense of fear that is so much a part of these discussions. I think that's so important because it gets left behind. Interesting. Yeah, really interesting. I, I, I was going to say, you know, to give Jordan some of his props, or to give some props to Jordan, because, I mean, he deserves a lot, uh, actually. Um, he he has articulated um, kind of the, the, the conservative religious, um, I guess position from the from from the intellectual class, right? Which isn't mm. normally taken, right? It's almost like there's a, a a societal bias that if you're religious, you're kind of stupid, right? Um, and then you can kind of compartmentalize that and put it in a box. But you know, he's like, wait a minute, this is there's there's a lot more depth here uh, from a, a, a psychologist standpoint uh, that we haven't really tapped into. And um, if anything, he seems to have balanced out the conversation a little bit more. Well, he he certainly provided all of those values, thoughts and ideas in a secular packaging without the religious aspect. 
which considering no religion is the largest growing religious group in this country, I think is part of the popularity because it's, it's all the stuff that makes it juicy without any of the God and religious stuff that has so much baggage for so many people. I'll give yeah. you that. Yeah. You know, it, it, it has mean, a lot of buy-in and let's face it. It has a lot of buy-in. We mo- yeah, Some I mean, of us don't like that, but it does. And we have to acknowledge it. Yeah, I mean, you have people that that maybe are not interested in a lot of the intellectual stuff, and I'll hear them say, oh, did you hear Jordan Peterson's lecture on um, Genesis or something like that? And I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> because I, you know, I, I don't gain a lot from from his 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 lectures, right? I mean, yeah. You know, I think I was already making my bed or whatever. <laughs> Anyways, I don't. I, but my point is, is that it's that I can see what other people are doing with it and how people are inspired. And um, I can see the good in, in, in them trying to change their lives. But I can also see a, a militant, almost like um, worship in his aura, which that seems to be dangerous, but I don't know. Exciting talk. Exciting talk for sure. Yes. No, we should, before we go, you should tell, this has been fascinating, but we've gotten a little bit off track, although it was a fun detour, but we're going to pull back onto the main line now. And um, let's talk about Plank Sip. What is it? Where is it? What's your vision? Tell us about it. So Plank in two words is, um, is an organic platform. And that comes from the, the plank and sip is like a sip of coffee uh, or a hot cup of tea. And I want to use those two words in conjunction to have a, an organic platform where we change what consumption means. And that act of sipping or slowly enjoying the um, experience of, of learning and discovering great literature and writing about it is what the platform's all about. And that's first and foremost what I want people to do. And we're pretty successful in terms of an audience that um, we're, we're a 30,000 subscriber base now. And we've got an email distribution that's pretty soon this year going to break a million. So we, um, I mean, I couldn't be happier. My goal is to get 10,000 uh, paid subscribers. And that's, um, that's an expensive proposition because the membership on Plank Sip is $100 a month. Um, but uh, we're looking for thought leaders that really want to um, be the best they can be. And it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a call for the U.S. Army, but it's uh it's, you know, let's, you know, let's, uh, let's work together. So we're looking for those people that are really, you know, wanting to, wanting to be thought leaders in their community. Yes, no, definitely. It's a quite, it's a quite impressive, a quite impressive thing. There's a lot of topics that get, you know, sort of covered and, and a lot of, a lot of philosophy, a lot of literature, all this type of thing. Um, I, I definitely am looking forward to adding what I do best, um, which tends to be more about culture and observations and 
things that are going on outside and weird internet trends and all this type of thing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that, no, that's very, that's very exciting. How does, how have you, here's one thing I would like to know. I think is it rather interesting. How have you found such an audience for this? Because it's so odd. Well, I think what it is, is that we are deliberate about um, making people um, a part of the uh, a, a part of the experience. We are deliberate about um, freedom of speech um, and we're deliberate about trying to make people a success. Um, and I will say that, um, you know, a, a 30,000 uh, size audience is actually not that big. I mean, it's it's big. But it's not that big um, in terms of where I would like it to be. Um, if, if we had a, if we had ten thousand paid members, then based on our current ratio, we would we would have, I think, a half a million um, newsletter readers. Right now, yeah. I mean, I, I've got a like a forty eight percent email open rate, but the audience is still kind of sleepy in a way. Right, I'm not getting tremendous amount of people, um, you know, they're, they're reading the articles, um, or they're opening them, they're skinning, they're skimming through them. So there's still a lot of work to be done. And I feel that that's going to be done at the aggregate level by attracting more and more and going from the 30,000 to 300,000. And I think it's just that ratio and it's, it's increasingly exponentially getting harder and harder to keep people's attention and harder and harder to keep, um, you know, people engaged. And so it's, um, no, and know. short form video has made that all the worse. I mean, I, I, I kind of love it cause I take my longer stuff and I chop it down, but it's like, I mean, I mean, I go through this every single week trying to, you know, take something like the banking crisis and crunch it down to 60 seconds is not yeah. easy, you know, but that's kind of where people are at. And that content does very well. It does better almost than anything else I do because uh, it's so accessible. Um, it, it's definitely a difficult, a difficult thing. So it's, um, yes, it's quite, it's quite difficult. And I agree. It is all about the audience, all about keeping people's attention. And I think, I think you're doing the fact that I think you've come this far is already an achievement all on its own. So Here's well, to bigger and brighter. With, yeah, let me leave you with one thing. I mean, did, we are about to hit the top of the hour. We got to wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> so the extent that I will take something for somebody is like somebody would said to me one time, why would somebody choose Planksip over, um, you know, uh, um, oh, I'm thinking Medium or uh, I was thinking Squarespace, but that's not it. It's the one where you um, you have your own uh, um uh, email newsletter or whatever, right? Anyways, Substack. The, Substack. Yes, thank you. Sorry, I had a, a bit of a blurb, blip there. So why would I do that? Well, you can't get in touch with anybody at Substack. You can't get in touch with anybody at Medium. Yeah. You're 100% bring your own audience. Yes. And what makes Planks Medium discovery is very hard. I've been on Medium for 10 years. It's audience discovery is very hard. The only reason I have an audience at Medium is because I get picked up by other publications on Medium who share yeah. my stuff. That's where I, yeah, because there's so little content discovery there. Right. So the example that I want to give, and I know we're going to wrap this up, but the example that I want to give, and you're going to be on that show next Tuesday, is 
um, the religious podcast, the video live stream with my good friend, Wade Franson. Well, he's a fellow publisher. Um, he started off as a member. Um, I said, why don't we do a live stream? Now, you know, we're up to 8,000 subscribers on his channel and average views of 5,000 a video because I don't give up and I keep working on his stuff and we, and we've got a team behind it and it's not easy and it's hard work, but he's the first one there and he's working as hard as everybody else. And so now you look at it and you say, who is out there that was a thought leader that says they want to have a team behind them? And I don't mean a team that's trying to sell them something. I mean, a team that is on the same vested path as you are. And that's the plank sip difference. And that's why it resonates. And that's why people stick around. And that's why people join the community, because we're a group of people that are all trying to support each other. And it shows. That's it, really. It should be that simple. And it really is. Yeah, no, that is the power, power of community. So, well, let's wrap this up. Why don't you tell us um, where you are online, uh, where we can get in touch with you on social media and all that sort of thing? Well, it's so funny. I do the the hashtag Google planks it because, you know, I'm being cheeky because it's like there's an act in there. Right. I mean, it's like right. the act of Googling. Um, but that's that's really what it is. It's um, plank sip, P-L-A-N-K-S-I-P and anything on the Internet that has to do with plank sip is is uh, is is our media outlet um, or a derivative of. And so um, planksip.org. And um, the YouTube channel, again, at PlankSip. Our, our most successful one is actually Durant and Friends. I have 50,000 subscribers on that one. But uh, yeah, come check us out. Uh, better yet, sign up, be a free member. Better yet, sign up, be a paid member. So um, yeah, we'd love to have you. And that's uh, PlankSip for you. Awesome. Well, thank you, Mr. Sanderson, for coming on the Cameron Journal podcast, and uh, and uh, we'll we'll stay in touch. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.